And what I started doing was writing threads on Twitter where at the end of every thread, I would link my newsletter. And so I had the fortunate luck of writing one thread that went pretty viral, got picked up by the likes of Naval and Tim Ferriss who, who liked it and retweeted it. And so I, I, I love telling this story because it took me 35 weeks to go from zero to 300 subscribers. And it took me 12 hours to go from 300 to 650. So, (laughs) you know, I went to bed and woke up to over double my subscriber growth. And so there's something to be said about writing and doing things on a consistent basis that you will eventually expose yourself to a breakthrough, which I I luckily got at that time. Yeah. Is that the tweet that is pinned on your profile? Yeah, that's so it's about Balaji Srinivasan, who's a thinker I'd never heard of. And I heard him on a few podcasts and said, wow, like, I really like the ideas this guy's putting out. And it it looked good and, and took off, which I didn't expect it to, because what I also like to say is I wrote 28 threads before that that didn't go viral. Wow. So people like to see the one that's, that does really well, but no one likes to think that I spent about an hour and a half times 28 on many before that that didn't go viral and it again goes back to that idea of consistency hi just a quick request if you're listening to this on apple podcasts please take a minute to write a review and leave us five stars on apple podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. Uh, thank you, Dickie, for doing this. And this is the most spontaneous podcast I've ever done. <laughs> I basically reached out to you via your tweet. You said you had a three-hour window where you did not have anything to do, and you replied to it. And here we are within 24 hours. <laughs> yep, that's the the serendipity of Twitter. I had a nice open chunk on my calendar and was looking for some advice on how people think about filling those open chunks when they have them and reach down the DM and, and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And so your story is very interesting and I think you would be the best person to describe it. So oh, why not introduce yourself? Sure. I'm a, a full-time portfolio manager. And so I spend most of my day predicting global economies, staring at charts and, and trying to figure out which way the market's going on any uh, given day. And I also write a weekly newsletter called Dickie's Digest. Every Sunday I send out that newsletter that I say it, it shares thoughts and links on growth of all kinds. So how businesses, people, and systems grow and improve. Right. And so what is the work of a portfolio manager in general? When you you look at at charts and you try to predict the global markets, what exactly does that mean? So it is... A portfolio manager is part of a, so I work for a hedge fund and we are managing money and taking positions in global markets, basically trying to create a macro view and say, we think that economies are going to unfold this way or that way. And based on that, here's where we think uh, the best investments are. Right. And so you invest in uh, markets in all the countries or are you geographically uh, investing in the U.S. only. So it's a macro fund. So it's everything, every country, commodities, currencies, equities, everything. Right. And is that what you studied in college finance? So in, in college, I studied applied math, which was more, a little bit less applied directly to finance. And it was just a more general math background. And it's something that you can apply to a bunch of different areas. And I also studied computer science with it. So it was really a foundational skill set that I'm able to kind of apply in this uh, on a day-to-day. Right. And what I find interesting about your story is that you're an avid reader, you're an avid listener of podcasts, but you also played sports a lot in your college. So talk to us about that, about your childhood, your college years. What were you doing during those years? Yeah, I played football uh, in college, started playing in high school, played offensive line at Princeton. And from there, as when I graduate or when I finished playing as a senior, it was a big kind of part of my identity that was suddenly no longer really with me. And so 
for years before that, I would introduce myself as a football player. And when that stopped, you kind of have this moment of, you know, what, what do I want to do going forward? And so that was really from there kind of transitioned into my full-time job where that becomes a little bit more of your identity. But I try to think of it now more as I have the opportunity to shape it a little bit. So what are the things that I want to define me, which is kind of what I'm exploring right now. Right. And so why did you stop playing uh, sports after you graduated from college? Well, with football, you can't really play if you don't go to the NFL after college. And so as, as, as great as I think I I was, I I wasn't NFL caliber. So hung it up after my senior year. Mm. And so how many years were you at this job or how many months were you at this job when you started your newsletter? So I started my newsletter in January of 2020 this year. And so I started work in July of 2018. So about a year and a half. Oh, okay. And uh, have you always tried starting side projects before this newsletter was? Not really. So the newsletter for me was a way to, I came into the year thinking, how can I spend a little bit of marginal time on some work that I'm already doing and by doing so expose myself to a bunch of upside. And so at the end of every week in 2019, I would write a small summary of the best podcasts or books that I read in the last week, just to kind of synthesize what I was learning. And so I thought to myself, if I add about 30 minutes of work and put it in a little bit more of a digestible format and start sending it to people, you unlock the the leverage of the internet. You get to meet awesome people. You get to you end up learning it more effectively because you you take the time to synthesize it better. So all of that for just a little bit of marginal work made it made it an easy choice. Right, and your newsletter is basically an aggregation of the content that you consume, and you basically try to pull out the best works that you have listened to that you have read. You summarize it in your own words for, for the lessons that you learned that your audience can read. And so taking a step back, at what age did you start reading and listening? Were you always an avid reader? No, not really. So I, I really didn't read too much until a little bit in college towards the end, but more when I kind of graduated and said, what are the the things that I'm most interested in? Because for when you, when you grow up in an educational system, you're pretty much told what to read and learn almost every year for, you know, 18 years. Right. And so I started to think, what are the, the things that I really want to learn about and how can I learn them? And so that it, it, what I found is I don't love to be told to read something, but when I'm choosing to do it myself, it's much easier. And so that was kind of the genesis of my reading and, and listening habits. Right. And when you were researching what are the kinds of topics you were interested in, did you always know that it was going to be a newsletter or a blog? So the blog and newsletter came about after I had started consuming content that now looking back was structured around personal growth and also just system improvement where now that's how I market my newsletter is you're going to learn how businesses, people and systems grow and improve. And so that was a kind of common thread across everything that I was learning about and thinking about and reading, which is a very broad, it's not super niche, but it's just a broad topic that can be applied to a bunch of different areas. Right. And take us back to January of 2020. You've decided that you're going to write a newsletter. You have a format in mind. How did you get your first subscribers? Were those people from your workplace? Were those your friends? Sure. So my my first subscribers were my mom, my two roommates, and my sister and my dad. And I signed them up myself. So I really didn't even have any real subscribers at that point. And so I got my first five by uh, inputting them myself. They had no choice. (laughs) <laughs> and what's interesting about reading all the editions of your newsletter is that you do update your subscriber numbers, not on every single one, but there are 
releases where you have said I have 150 subscribers, 100 subscribers. It has grown to 550. It's 1,000 now. So over time, as a reader who has read every single uh, edition of your newsletter, one can see your growth and see the trajectory that you're on to. But when you had five subscribers, you were writing maybe the first edition. What was your growth plan? Where were you sharing these uh, things that you were writing in the newsletter to get more subscribers? So I, I very intently did not set a subscriber goal when I began. I had one goal and it was to write a newsletter every Sunday for 52 weeks in a row because you can put a lot of, when you set an external goal, like the, a number of subscribers, you start to optimize for the wrong reasons where if you simply say, I'm going to write for 52 weeks, things are going to take care of themselves. Most people, they don't want to be told that it's going to take them 30 weeks to reach 200 subscribers. If, if I had known that at the very beginning, it might have derailed me, right? But by setting a goal of an internally driven goal of I'm going to do this for myself for 52 weeks, I was able to kind of fight off the writing into a void syndrome where I'm on edition 10 and I've been doing this for 10 weeks and I'm writing to 35 people. That can be discouraging if your goal is to have a lot of subscribers. But for me, that wasn't the case. Right. And I've seen this on my TikTok as well. For the longest time, I would get 30 views. <laughs> and I don't know when that switch flipped, but over time I've had videos that have a million views or something. So I think it's it's the long game. You start posting content, you do things, and over time it accelerates. It's a It's all about consistency. And what you'll find is that there are very few people who don't have a lot of readers who have written something every week for a year. There's a reason that anyone that you see that's been writing for a year has an audience paying attention to it because there's something about a credibility that is formed by your consistency where if you're writing the 45th edition of your newsletter, me as a reader, I'm going to see that and say, well, clearly they're onto something if they've been able to write it for 45 weeks in a row. So that it almost, it creates a, a credibility that makes a reader more likely to read whatever you, whatever it is you're creating. Right. Yeah. I recently saw a tweet that if you want to look at the uh, most downloaded podcasts of the previous decade, what you will realize is that these are the shows that have been here the longest. So that mm -hmm. is the common metric in all of these things. And so you had five subscribers, you're writing, you started writing, putting out these additions, what was your distribution plan like? Were you just sending it out to your immediate uh, email subscribers or were you reposting these articles or small summaries anywhere else? So it, it wasn't super th well thought out until really June where I, I didn't try to overthink it and just said, I'm just going to create for a while. I'm in no rush. I'm taking a, a super long view uh, of this project years. I think it's a if you're building an audience or just a community of people who are interested in what you're saying or respect your ideas, you have to optimize for the long run. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't rush into anything. I didn't try to be, you know, over the top with anything. I said, I'm just going to keep creating and, and will eventually attract the type of person that, that I want reading this. And so there was nothing too thought out until about June where June and July, I said, okay, I can start to accelerate growth a little bit. What are some of the avenues I want to take? And what I started doing was writing threads on Twitter where at the end of every thread, I would link my newsletter. And so I had the fortunate luck of writing one thread that went pretty viral, got picked up by the likes of Naval and Tim Ferriss who, who liked it and retweeted it. And so I... I, I love telling this story because it took me 35 weeks to go from zero to 300 subscribers. And it took me 12 hours to go from 300 to 650. Oh, so, <laughs> you know, I went to bed and woke up to over double my subscriber growth. And so there's something to be said about writing and doing things on a consistent basis that you will eventually expose yourself to a breakthrough, which I, I luckily got at that right. time. Yeah. Is that the tweet that is pinned on your profile? Yeah, that's...
so it's about Balaji Srinivasan, who's a, a thinker I'd never heard of. And I heard him on a few podcasts and said, wow, like I really like the ideas this guy's putting out and it, it looked good and, and took off, which I didn't expect it to because what I also like to say is I wrote 28 threads before that that didn't go viral. Wow. So people like to see the one that's, that does really well, but no one likes to think that I spent about an hour and a half times 28 on many before that, that didn't go viral. And it's again, goes back to that idea of consistency. Right. And when you're creating content, are there certain people you look up to, to see that this person is doing really well and I want to replicate their success and how they are creating content? No one in particular well, I, I guess I really like the work of Anthony Pompliano, David Perel, these just prolific creators, and right. they don't have any secrets. They just consistently create and add value to, for, for their audience for long periods of time. And so it's not something that you have to overthink. It's how can I provide value every single week? And what's funny is these guys have been doing it for years, not, not weeks. So you can't get caught up trying to compare yourself to someone's 250th edition of their newsletter. I hope they have more subscribers than, than you do at, at, with your sixth one, but you have to take the long view uh, for sure. Right. And Anthony does a podcast every single day. And I think it does two shows, two shows every single day on YouTube and they're one hour long. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, you have to be, I don't think that very many people who create online would be willing to do the type of work that these top, top, most prolific creators do. It looks like, oh, I want that size audience, but I don't think you want to record five podcasts a week, write a daily newsletter, you know, right. tweet six times. It's hard. It's grueling. I, I got to think it is. So I, I, you know, but that's why they're successful. Yeah, I was just listening to Anthony's uh, interview. I forget which podcast it was, but I think it was Creator Lab. And he said that he basically has 12 to 14 hour days. That's how he produces so much content. Mm -hmm. Right. No one wants to be told that. Right. Yeah. And uh, I was reading one of your editions of the newsletter and you mentioned this book, War of Art and Resistance Strategies. And I know you're big on frameworks and you write down notes, you... Uh, practice them. So can you explain uh, what those resistance strategies are and what are the things that stop you from uh, doing what you want to do? Sure. The The War of Art is one of the most impactful books that I've personally ever read. And it, it's it's nothing groundbreaking, but it's putting a name to a feeling that we all have. So the resistance is just anything that keeps you from doing the things that you know you should be doing, right? I think there's a fundamental human nature problem that fascinates me is what if every person did all the things they said they were going to do? What does the world look like in that wow. scenario, right? Everyone has, I like to say, there's no one more ambition than my 10 p.m. on Sunday night self thinking of all the things I'm going to do that week, right? <laughs> right. And so what is it that actually stops us from doing those things? And so Stephen Pressfield, who's a very prolific author, he calls it the resistance. And it's he, the resistance is anything that holds you back. It comes in hundreds of different forms. It, it distracts you. It's procrastination. It's working on things that you think you should be working on that don't actually move the needle, right? So there's just hundreds of different things that the resistance takes form. And so acknowledging that and saying, okay, I'm feeling the resistance right now. How do I meet that? How do I overcome that is, is a powerful kind of mental model. And, and how do you do that? Because I, I believe that most people, when they feel resistance, they feel that in a subconscious way, they cannot recognize that consciously. And so how do you get into a habit of recognizing resistance and how do you overcome that? I wish I, I wish I had the perfect answer because <laughs> just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean it doesn't beat my ass constantly. <laughs> right? right. And so there's, I think the 
the biggest antidote to the resistance is showing up whether or not you feel like it and having a framework in place for when you're not feeling it, how do you go about still showing up where there's mornings where I, the last thing I want to do is work out. And so what I do is say, whenever I feel like that, I have a minimum viable workout where all I have to do is do that. And it's not very hard, but 90% of the time, by the time I'm in the middle of that minimum viable workout, I'm ready to do something harder or ready to do whatever I had planned. Right. So it's setting up where, okay, I do not want to sit down and write today, but I I've told myself that Saturday mornings I write for three hours. And so it doesn't matter. I can get on there and just all I have to do is write for three hours. And when you show up consistently, the resistance has a way of kind of melting away. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned this minimum viable action that you have to take because I had Jamie McDonald on the first episode of the podcast and he's the social media manager of Dean Graziosi and Lewis Hovis from the School of Greatness podcast and some very famous entrepreneurs in the motivation space. And he talked about that too. So I think he in his early 20s had an addiction problem and he sort of realized that if he takes a huge goal of overcoming addiction, he will never do that. But if he takes one small step at a time, I will work out for maybe one minute. I'll do one push up, and that was his minimum viable action. But yeah, it's a it's a macro goal, micro action framework where you want to have these big audacious macro goals, but those are accomplished through micro actions. So that that's kind of my framework for both setting goals and. And operating on a daily basis is how I have these big pictures in mind, but all you can do is take that micro step today. Right. And I would assume that you use a lot of frameworks. So can you describe your daily routine? And when you're describing your daily routine, can you describe the frameworks that you're using at certain times during the day? Hmm. Let me think about that one a little bit. I'm thinking about this one a lot right now, actually, and my I'm calling it intentional day planning. So you start to think about, especially given we're working from home, we all have a little bit more control over our schedules at the moment and how we can go about better spending this kind of newfound time that we have. And so the couple things that I keep in mind are what parts of my day can I optimize for flow, which means one of my least, what part of the day can I focus the best and that's when I want to be scheduling kind of my big chunks of work. What parts of the day do I want to treat as sacred? Meaning I don't let any distractions kind of overcome or, or enter my, my operations. And then also what parts of my day do I want to be more reachable and do a little bit less intense thinking and do some of the lighter work. So the, the frameworks that kind of guide my daily basis are, task chunking where the ultimate thing I want to avoid is context switching. And so when I'm working on different projects, I want to make sure that my day is structured such that I'm working on something and whatever I do right after that should be related. And if it's not, it needs to be split up with some kind of break. So if I'm doing really analytical work and thinking about markets and doing math I can't immediately jump in and start reading something. I need to have some kind of clear break in, in the system. And when you remove that friction of working bet between projects, you're able to take more projects on, right? If the startup cost of doing something new is low, you're able to do it more often. And so that's something I'm, I'm thinking all about right now. Wow. Where did you read this? It's very interesting. I don't think I've read it anywhere specifically other than the friction idea is from James Clear. And, and the idea is anything you want to do more effectively, remove the friction. Anything you want to stop doing, add some friction. And so that goes for behavior change. It goes for working on a daily basis, et cetera. Yeah. James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I started reading his book just this morning. I think I'm 45 pages in or something. Very interesting. I think Atomic Habits and Meditations by Marcus Aurelius are the two most impactful books uh, that I've read where they're very different, but kind of 
they one atomic habits I think is valuable because I, the way I describe it is it's a book that teaches you to do the things that you say you're going to do. Right. And which we talked about earlier and meditations by Marcus Aurelius is just ancient stoic wisdom from a, a 2000 year old emperor that still applies today. Right. So it's, it's kind of a barbell of a very new book and a very old book, but both have very valuable lessons. Wow. Have you read Ryan Holiday's book on stoicism? Which, so he's got a bunch of them. The obstacle is the way. Yeah. Yeah. So Ryan Holiday is kind of who introduced me to stoicism, but before I read any of his stuff, I went and read the kind of primary stoic texts, which are meditations by Marcus Aurelius, discourses by Epictetus and letters from a stoic by Seneca. So both all three of those are, are some of the most marked up books on my bookshelf because you can, you can underline just about every single word without, you know, without getting bored. Wow. And for those listeners who don't know what stoicism is, can you explain that in your own words and what is your take on that? Stoicism, I think people try to overcomplicate it. They try to, everyone's got an opinion on it, but the ultimate idea of the framework is putting our efforts and attention and energy on things that are firmly within our control and relinquishing them on everything that isn't in our control, right? So anything you're complaining about, recognizing that if your actions are pointed at something that is essentially out of your control, there's no use, right? There's only two step. You either have, it's, it's a very empowering framework because you know that anything that you do give attention to, you have the power to change and anything else you don't give any attention to, right? The feelings of, of helplessness and overwhelm come from, you know, a hamster running on a, a, a treadmill of, it feels like you're never going anywhere because all your efforts and attention are going at things that aren't going to move the needle or you don't have any control over. So that's the, the, it's kind of a fancy, there's a lot of flowery words and, you know, everyone's got their ideas on it, but at the end of the day, that's what the, the Stoic texts are preaching. Right. And using the Stoic framework, can you describe your newsletter? There are certain variables of running a newsletter that may be under your control. And then there are certain variables that are out of your control, say subscriber numbers. And so can you describe some of the variables that you might have thought of? Sure. So, well, the exact goal I, I described earlier of writing for 52 weeks, that's firmly in my control. But if I said my goal is to have a thousand subscribers, that's firmly not out of my control. So you could see where the dissatisfaction could start to creep in as I write for 40 weeks in a row, but don't hit that subscriber goal. Where is this internally driven one of I'm going to do this for X number of weeks? It's firmly up to me whether or not I do that. Right. So you, you also just have a, an accountability to yourself when you start to set goals in that way. Right. And in the newsletter, you also write in some of the editions, you also write about sports. So what role does being, being a former football player uh, play in your life? Well, I just, I've always loved sports of all kinds and competition is just fascinating to me. I, I, I really am interested in the best coaches because I think coaching a sports team to, to victory has so many nuances and interesting, it's motivation, it's strategic planning, it's habits, it, it's just a, they're a CEO of a company with a hundred workers and have to find a way to, you know, there's so many parallels between building a business and sports coaches that I think is pretty cool. Mm. And who are the coaches uh, you're studying and what are their stories? So the ones I find most fascinating, Nick Saban at University of Alabama, Bill Belichick for the Patriots, Phil Jackson for, of, of the Bulls and Lakers, just these guys that have unbelievable track records that have won so many championships that you can't attribute it to luck. You have to say it's something that they're fundamentally doing different than other, other coaches and what those things are. Right. And so what are those things? Are you aware of them? Have you read about them? 
There, I don't have exact answers to those. It's more some of the common threads are our process over outcome, the importance of practice, building up just a a fundamental belief of your players in their ability to do things. Those would be a couple of them. Right. And when you're writing a newsletter, I think I read somewhere that you write a journal daily and you have been doing that for a few, maybe more than a few months now. So I'm not sure where you started writing that journal, but uh, talk to us about that habit of yours and why did you start writing a journal every single day? Yeah, I've, so I've, I've written about 500 words of morning pages for at least 500 days in a row now. And it's a very simple habit. It's the first thing I do every morning. I wake up, I brush my teeth, drink some water, and I sit down and I, so I type it. I don't write because I'm able to get more thoughts out, but it's a way to, before I check my phone, before I do anything, it's let's get all these thoughts that are on in my head, out of my head, right? So if, if you read through my, my, my journal, it's, I talk about different things every single day. Sometimes it's an idea, it's a problem, it's a reflection. Sometimes it's structured where I'll reflect on a certain question. I'll reflect on a decision. It's a space for me to every single day have some kind of dialogue with myself of whatever's going on. And so now I've done it for a little bit over two years where every day that I write now, I'm able to look back at my journal from last year and the year before that on this exact day. So I'm able to see how I'm growing. And also you just have a perspective of some of the stupid things I was worried about back then, which I'm now able to think about and say, what are the same stupid things I'm worrying about now? And what am I going to look back on in a few years when I read today's journal entry that I'll laugh at that, right? Yeah. So you're able to to put a little bit of perspective in your daily life. Mm. And for anybody who is not a subscriber of your newsletter, and maybe they are listening to this podcast, how do you describe your newsletter? So my newsletter is a, a weekly curation of thoughts and links on how businesses, people, and systems improve. So you can expect to see three or four links to either essays or blog posts or podcasts or interviews with people who are fundamentally talking about growth. So it could be personal growth, physical growth, economic growth, network growth, productivity growth, all these things that are kind of the long threads that weave their way through everything in this world with system and people improvement. Right. And so when does the newsletter go out? I send it out every Sunday night. And so you can pop it open Sunday night if if you're sitting around watching TV or people sometimes say they like to start their week there on Monday with some interesting things to kind of look and read. So I've started to, I've, I've been sending it on Sunday. I've thought a little bit about making it a Monday morning, but usually people are busy on Monday morning, but and less busy on a Sunday. So for, for now I'm keeping it with Sunday. Yeah. And so say you send out the next newsletter next Sunday, take us to the process of uh, crafting the next edition of the newsletter. You've sent out the previous one Monday, you're fresh. You have to send the next one the next Sunday. Take us to the process of crafting that newsletter from scratch. The best part about it right now is it tends to write itself just based on what I do on a weekly basis, where right when I send the first, right when I send it on a Sunday, I make a new note and it usually has one or two things populated instantly that I didn't include in this week's that I want to include the next week. I always kind of have this idea, these overflow where I don't include every single thing because I like to make it a little bit easier the next week. But then I I keep a simple note of topics that I think I'm going to put in there. But really what the digest is, is a summary of what I consume that week. So when I sit down and process the books I read or the podcasts that I listen to or the ideas I found fascinating, they, it's really just a curation of the things I'm doing for myself, right? Which is the only sustainable way to create anything. 
if you try to write or create online through the lens of what my audience is going to find interesting, you're not going to be able to do it sustainably. Whatever you're doing needs to be very, I call it selfish, where the best content creation is self-indulgent, where what you're reading or learning or sharing or who you're talking to, you would do even if no one listened or read, right? It needs to be purely for your learning. And the byproduct of that is almost always higher quality content. Right. And you write these detailed notes on every single episode of the podcast you listen to or the books that you read. So do you do that? So uh, do you do that as soon as you have completed the book or the podcast episode? Or do you do that on a daily basis? You have a scheduled time of writing something in your journal every single day. So my almost all of my podcast listening comes on my morning walks or afternoon walks. And I've developed over time a unique ability to listen to a podcast at two times speed, walk and take wow. notes on my phone at the same time, oh, which, <laughs> which, which sounds like a, a, a circus act for sure. But I have been kind of practicing it. And now I've listened to these ideas that most people end up saying the same thing in 50 different ways. And so I can start to recognize these these atomic ideas that come within each podcast. So I'm able to kind of zone out if I know that whatever is that being said right now is not super valuable. But I, I have a spidey sense for when they say something that resonates uh, and I'll quickly start to write that down. And which notepad application do you use to make these notes? So everything is done for my newsletter in Notion. But I use drafts on my phone to quick capture. And then at the end of every week, I make sure that I empty out my drafts inbox to process the podcasts I listen to or any fleeting ideas. I have a note every morning on my walk of just any idea that pops into my head, knowing that I have a trusted system to process those ideas in the future. Yeah. And uh, I think in one of the latest episodes, you had this section in your newsletter where I think it was called where the cool things are or something. And you mentioned Brian Point, a newsletter by Jane Hill. I'm not sure if you're aware of her. She's on Twitter. So she's also an aggregator of content, just like you are. I think her market is different. Her niche is different than you. And so which are the newsletters that you are aware of that are aggregating content that these people are reading and they're doing it well? So Janelle's is definitely up there with Brain Pine. So we did a collaboration where she talked about my newsletter in, in her edition of Brain Pint and I talked about hers. She does a great job. I also did a collaboration with Alex in Books, who runs an awesome Twitter account. Wow. Who's a little bit a little bit less of a curator, but kind of curates books for people and is right. is a good resource of who and what you should be reading at any given time. Other curators, Find Your Pulse by Saria Zoot, I think is very good. She That one's a tech newsletter. Mm. And uh, I think that's it on terms of curation newsletters that I particularly enjoy. Yeah. Are you aware of Anthony Pomp's girlfriend? I think her name is Maureen. Oh, that's a great, exactly. So that's, a, that's an awesome one. I totally forgot that one. Because I, I actually read her so religiously that I don't even think about it as a aggregate. Like it just slipped my mind because I was trying to think of like aggregator newsletters, right. but that hers is is just so high quality. I always I save two or three interviews every single time from from hers. So that's a that's a great one. Yeah, and for the longest time, I did not even know that she was aggregating uh, her profile reads. I thought she was interviewing people. And then I think maybe a couple of weeks back, uh, I saw a tweet and then I realized that she's aggregating and it's she does a fascinating job of doing that. Definitely. Yeah. And what are your favorite books in terms of... Uh, so there are some books that you read that have great entertainment value. And then there are some books through which you can learn lessons and then you can take those lessons for multiple years. Atomic Habits would be one of them. You learn all these frameworks of forming little habits that will Im improve your life 1% at a time. So what are those books like Atomic Habits and the book on stoicism that you mentioned that you have, you go back to over and over again? It's really those books right there. 
that I find myself revisiting the most. Other than that, I, I would say those are the ones I revisit the most. So nothing, most other books I have, I read and can apply the frameworks, but they're less, they're more specific and less general. So they're either on marketing or copywriting or something like that, more practical and less framework-based, right. whereas those are, are just mental models for, for long-term kind of operating. And I think learning copywriting while you're uh, journaling as well. So uh, what difference does learning to write a great copy make uh, for a newsletter mm-hmm. writer say? I think anyone who wants to become a better writer should simply study copywriting because it is with, with what you're competing with on a daily basis with your writing is every, everyone else is competing for others' attention. So however you write needs to grab attention where that doesn't mean doing it in a sleazy clickbait kind of way, but it's people have a finite attention span. And copywriters are designed to keep your attention. So anything that you write, if it's not keeping attention, people are just going to keep scrolling, which right. Twitter is the ultimate way to learn how to write copy because as you're scrolling a feed and trying to get convince someone to stop and look at your tweet, mm. right? So that comes down to the ADA framework, which is, so the best book on copywriting is The Boron Letters, B-O-R-O-N okay. by Gary Halbert. And it's a awesome, just quick read from a, a dad in, in jail for who knows what, but writing a letter to his son of all the lessons he's learned from writing copy. And Gary Halbert is a legendary copywriter and his framework is called ADA, attention, interest, desire, and action. Okay. And so with anything you're trying to, with copywriting is you want to grab their attention. You want to create interest for them to keep reading. You want to them to then desire to learn more and then you want to inspire them to action. So that's kind of, if you look at any great sales letter or any great tweet, it's usually structured in that ADA framework. And once you see it, you can't unsee it because you'll start to see it everywhere. Yeah. And so on Twitter, who are the people do you think uh, use ADA framework knowingly or unknowingly the most? Ooh, that's a good one. So one of my favorites is George Mack, who writes very high quality threads and all of his threads definitely grab attention and make you want to keep reading. So he's one of them. David Perel does a great job with it because he writes some very good threads. James Clear, just all these guys who who are masters of providing value, but also doing it in a way that just captures attention uh, amidst a, a sea of, of noise. Mm. And if you had to advise someone about writing great threads on Twitter, and I've read your threads, they're all awesome. And I've read so many of them that have gone viral. You wait 1,800 followers or something, and I see 500 likes and 1,700 likes. So great engagement rates. So if you had to advise someone on writing great threads, what would your advice be? To write a great thread, you need first to have an interesting thing to write about. And so most of my threads are deep dives into the work of a specific person. And so that it cuts a couple ways, right? So first, you're creating value for that person because very often they'll reach out to me after I write a thread and say, Hey, thanks for doing that. I've never kind of thought about all the ideas that I repeat all the time. Right. So my threads kind of, I try to get inside the worldview of whoever I write a thread about. And so I'll listen to their, all of their podcast interviews, like three or four at least. Mm -hmm. And you start to see what are the frameworks and ideas that kind of they repeat over time. And they start to just stick out to you. So you really get inside their head. And then I just kind of write them up, right? So immediately when I tag them in it and they see that, they're going to retweet it, which allows it to get more engagement because they have more followers than I do. And then from there, it's, okay, maybe I, I, you have to provide some kind of personal nuance on it that 
prevents it from just being a dry repetition of things they've said. You have to either interpret things in your own way. I like to ask them questions at the end of each thread because um, my hope is that if they're reading it, then they read those questions and then they respond and it just drives the engagement up. So th those would be some of my tips. Right. And with the newsletter, you wrote in your newsletter that you have subscribers from maybe 29 different countries. So how did you come uh, up with that number? Did you ask your subscribers? Was that a survey? So Substack has just a analytics part for where the servers are for your readers. So it's nothing too granular, but it shows the country of origin. And so okay. it's crazy the scale of the internet that has, you're able to <laughs> reach a thousand people from 29 countries just by sharing work that I'm already doing. Yeah. And do you ask your readers for feedback? A little bit. And I'm starting to think more about, I, I really would like to get some testimonials where you start to ask them what they, what value they get out of the newsletter and how they think about that. But I, I haven't done too much work on the feedback because again, what I'm doing is, is more or less a selfish exercise where I, I don't care too much about what they think yeah. on every edition because I'm still writing it for me. Mm. And where do you see this newsletter in the next 52 weeks? Are there certain changes that you would like to make to the format? Say add some things that you're interested in and maybe you could share it with your readers? It's a good question. I don't have too particular of a goal. I, mm. I do tie in some of my own writings. And so I do intend to kind of accelerate a little bit more of of what I write about. I have some ideas for creating a bit more of a community around it. I have some ideas of taking everything that I've shared and putting it into a single location of kind of a, a master curation. That, that would be very interesting. And other than that, more just, I, I think it's a way to maintain, it's the highest leverage thing you can do with an hour of your time on a Sunday where I could have a one hour conversation with one person or I could write a newsletter and have 10,000 conversations. Right. 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 Interesting. And what are your favorite podcasts to listen to? So I did a thread on my best podcast episodes ever, but the ones that, and so now I'm actually working on one of every podcast that I subscribe to and why I subscribe to it. So the best and the ones I get the most value out of, Tim Ferriss show invest like the best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, the North star with David Perel. I really enjoy the Aubrey Marcus podcast. I don't listen to too much Joe Rogan unless there's a guest that I really like. Yeah. And what are some of the others? I need to pull up my list, but, but those are the ones that kind of jump out right away. I also really like pivot with, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. That's a tech podcast. And that one's for more, that one's more junk, junk food on my yeah. information diet, but it's very <laughs> funny and, and fun to listen to. So those are some of the best, the pump podcast, obviously up there. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are. And you wrote something about the carnivore diet and talk to us a bit about that, your diet and your exercise and what role does it play in keeping you up? Uh, in the right mindset, yeah. So I, I played off the line in college and weighed in around 280 pounds at my biggest because it's my <laughs> job to, to be as big and strong as possible. So yeah. when I stopped playing football, I like to say I was either going one of two ways. It was it's going to be up 100 or down 100. And <laughs> um, I ended up with, with, with a down 100. So uh, in that kind of journey, I've just realized that if your number one priority is your personal health, and so that's your, your diet, sleep, exercise, and mental health, if you prioritize those, first off, you're going to have just higher energy and be more effective than anyone else, right? If that is part of the reason I work out in the morning versus doing some kind of deep work in the morning, when both that's the period that I'll have the least amount of distraction but given that my priority is my personal health, that's when I work out because otherwise it would get pushed later in the day or later in the week or something like that. Whereas I know there's going to be no distraction and there's no excuse if there's no distraction. So 
that is kind of my framework and I'm super into sleep tracking and kind of personal analytics around health because if you're optimizing for one thing in life, it should be your energy levels. And so anything I can do to have more energy, to get more done, to do more things, to be happier, I'm always kind of interested in that. And I would like to hear your thoughts on why you think Twitter is undervalued. Oh, just, well, it's funny you say that because it's down 20% today. After, no worries, you know. <laughs> exactly. I think you were after, not talking about the stock market value. <laughs> that Well, I think the stock market value is undervalued, but yeah. this Twitter's undervalued because you have a direct, it has democratized access to the brains of some of the smartest thinkers on earth. Wow. You have the ability to see exactly what someone is thinking. You also have more or less direct access to their inbox, right? Yeah. Everyone, not everyone reads their own email, but everyone checks their own Twitter. So yeah. when you tag them and things are going to eventually see it, you have the ability to curate a feed and learn on any topic that you want to, right? Yeah. So I, I like to say Instagram is show off your body where Twitter is showing off your mind. And so yeah. I much prefer to, to see other people's minds and, and see what they're interested in and, and have them kind of share their value. And, and that's really what Twitter is all about. Plus the connections you can make. Twitter is what LinkedIn should have been, where if you go on Twitter and you say, here's what I am, here's what I'm interested in, you're going to attract that like-minded person and you're able to kind of spark up conversation, DMs, et cetera. So. Right. And the next question is from Tim Ferriss's podcast. <laughs> So what is the one thing that you're good at that you are not widely known for? Not widely known for here. Kind of think about this one. All right. So one thing I'm good at, but not known for, I really think I'm a pretty good cook. I can cook a lot of things. I, I'm really a master in the reverse sear of a ribeye steak. And I think I could go toe to toe with anyone, but oh. <laughs> I don't think anyone... What, what's funny about it is I really cook for myself mostly, so few people know, which, but I think I could go toe-to-toe with the best of them. Right. <laughs> and if you had to choose one person who is successful according to you, according to your mindset, your metrics, one person who is successful, who would that be? That's an easy one. Shamath Palihapitiya. Mm. I think he is... The way I think about him, he's a billionaire with fuck you money that is still very aware and kind of calls attention to the important things in life, which are your mental health and your personal health and your family. And so, whereas others kind of let those things get out of hand, he's very transparent with the way he thinks about things and what he struggles with. So that is kind of a combination that I think is as successful as it can get, right? You have the the personal success in, in both financial and and health and mental well-being and happiness, right? That's just the combination that we're all looking for and it seems like he's got it. Right. And are you keeping uh, your eyes on his packs? Yeah, a little bit. They're all trading pretty well. I think it's fascinating some of the bets that he's taking with Open Door and I think I think Clover Health is the most recent one. And then before that it was it was Virgin Galactic. Virgin so Galactic, yeah. he's got just a cool way of thinking about the world right now. And I know he's got about ten billion bucks on his balance sheet and is looking <laughs> for a way to kind of make some some outsized bets here. So I think he's not someone I'd want to bet against, that's for sure. Yeah. And I've been watching a lot of people doing these rolling funds. And interestingly enough, I saw you did a huge, uh, very popular thread on rolling funds. So for our listeners, can you explain what those are? Yeah, rolling fund. So this was a great example of Twitter being just a powerful engine to learn in public, because I wanted to learn about them. And so I started doing research and I read all about them and said, okay, might as well share what I learned. And it got picked up by Naval and and some guys from like Naval responded to it, but it was responding because I made a mistake in the thread. <laughs> and, but the rolling fund is when you have a venture capital fund, there's no any outside investors, the, the capital amount is fixed 
where a rolling fund is really every quarter there's a new fund. And so you're able to roll over your shares, the current fund into the new one, if you'd like. Okay. And at the same time, also raise capital from new investors. So every quarter you have the ability to raise new money and put it into the new fund and then deploy that capital. So it just, you're able to quickly launch and scale a fund. And the biggest differentiator of that versus traditional venture fund is a rolling fund you're able to publicly market. And so as the creator economy rises and people with audiences and access to deal flow gain in prevalence, they're able to just scale up a rolling fund and say, who wants to invest? So you look at Pomp and you look at oh. Sean Puri and a lot of these guys who started funds and just leveraged their audience and boom, 20 million bucks raised in a matter of days. Whereas you're, that, that's definitely, it's democratized access to starting a venture fund. Right. And what are SPACs, if you have any idea about them? So SPACs are special purpose acquisition vehicles where you the easiest way to say it is you give your money to a sponsor for two years and they have the ability to look for a company to invest their entire capital base in. Worst case, if they don't invest in one, you get your principal back at the end of the, at the, end of the two years and you don't lose anything. Oh. So with interest rates at zero, there's no downside to putting money in a SPAC where instead of earning, you know, 20 basis points on two-year treasuries, you just put it in and say, okay, Chamath, I trust your deal-making ability. Go see if there's a company that you feel good about partnering with. Now, once they partner with them, they go public together as one merged company. Some of the ownership is transferred. There's tons of different little nuances of it, but basically it's a way for a a single sponsor to raise money and put that into a single company and take them public. Mm, interesting. And I think IPO A and B, they have done very well with Chamath. I think IPO C was the one that, uh, I think the market is undervaluing it with Clover Health. So do you have any ideas about that? I haven't dug too much into Clover Health. I think it's interesting. I do, I'm starting to see that he's trying to make a one big bet in a bunch of, of different trends. And so he's right. saying that residential real estate is here to stay and it's only going to accelerate. And so open door, I think there is a massive tailwind behind healthcare, especially private healthcare as things move forward and any healthcare company that's able to better leverage technology, I think deserves a good hard investment. I think he's taken some flack because he, the multiple paid on it was, was rather steep. And the market's not rewarding him for that, but I think he's he's got a longer term plan. Wow, very interesting. <laughs> You're very big on frameworks and I'm reading Atomic Habits and the author basically says that you don't optimize for goals, you optimize for systems. So if you had to give one advice to the listeners listening to this and maybe they haven't started anything, maybe they are on the edge and they just want one push to get them started in their side project, what advice would you give to them? I would say you have to you have to get started with the accept you have to accept the fact that it's going to suck for the first large chunk of doing something and you have to be honest with yourself whether or not you're prepared for it right if if I could put you in a position where you started something and got to skip the first 15 weeks you definitely be easily keep going, right? So the hardest part is getting started and kind of in the middle of it. So it's it's going in with that awareness that, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable. I might be tweeting to zero people. I might have zero sales. No one wants to be told that. But if you accept that fact and say, okay, I'm going to do this for X amount of time, it's hard to fail. Where if you put some kind of external metric on it, it's going to be very dissatisfying. So you have to keep it internal and say, I'm committing to do this for the long haul and just get started. Wow. And if people want to know more about you or say they want to connect with you, what would be the best place to do that? So I spend far too much time on Twitter. It's at Dickie Bush, D-I-C-K-I-E-B-U-S-H, all one word. I write a weekly newsletter, Dickie's Digest. So that's dickiebush.substack.com. And then I write 
on a personal blog at, at dickybush.com. So luckily a very unique name here. So I didn't have to compete <laughs> with, with too many domains. So if, if my DMs are open, emails open, so shoot me a message. We'd love to connect if, if any of this resonated. Right. Thank you, Dickie, for doing this. This was awesome. No problem. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs>